If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. On this election eve, we'll talk to a remarkable progressive politician who's both a former child actress, former state senator, and assembly person, and she's currently on the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors representing District 3, and her name is ta-da, Sheila Kuehl. And another rock star, one of my favorite New Yorkers drops by to catch up, Jessica Stern. She is the executive director of Outright Action International, which you might also know as Eagle Herc. Eagle Herc. That's one of those acronyms. When you learn to pronounce it, you feel so proud. I know, and then I'm sort of sad to lose it. <laughs> I know, it's gone. And we'll jump into the IMRU Gayback Machine to visit the very first Christopher Street West Pride in June 1970. But first, here's the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Tanya Kane Perry. And I'm John Dyer V. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending June 4th, 2016. An estimated 2 million people kicked off June's traditional LGBT Pride Month with the annual parade in Sao Paulo, Brazil on May 29th, arguably the largest such event in the world. What the Spanish EFE News Agency called a multicolored human river of celebrants took over the city's downtown financial district under sunny skies. Singers, dancers, and DJs entertained the crowd on at least 17 giant sound trucks as they wove their way down the parade route that began along Avenida Paulista. Revelers also made the political personal by demanding passage of a bill that would allow trans people to legally change their gender. It also requires government health providers to offer gender reassignment. The slogan for Sao Paulo's 20th annual LGBT Pride March was Gender Identity Law Now, Everyone Together Against Transphobia. According to the non-governmental organization Transgender Europe, Brazil has recorded the violent deaths of 802 transsexuals in the past eight years though the unreported number surely adds considerably to that statistic, far outpacing the second most violent country in the world for trans people, Mexico. In the 14th Lesbians and Bisexuals March in downtown Sao Paulo the day before the Pride Parade, hundreds of Brazilian women protested gender violence and bias based on sexual orientation. 
Even though same-gender couples were legally recognized in Brazil in 2013, the South American nation is still heavily Roman Catholic. Leading the foot-dragging over the trans rights bill, the politically powerful church has also been able to stall a bill to punish anti-LGBT hate crimes. About 200,000 people marched in the Middle East's largest annual LGBT pride parade on June 3rd in the Israeli city of Tel Aviv. The L in LGBT was highlighted during this year's festivities. The theme of Women for a Change celebrated the role women have played in the LGBT movement. The accompanying Pride Festival included a fashion show, a Eurovision-style singing competition, and an LGBT film festival. Mayor Ron Huldai proclaimed Tel Aviv to be a city of tolerance and a beacon to other cities. Support for the legal recognition of same-gender couples has steadily grown across Israel. There is no civil marriage in the country, and only religious authorities can perform weddings. None will officiate the marriages of lesbian or gay couples. But in a major opinion poll conducted ahead of the Tel Aviv Pride festivities, 76% of the Jewish-Israeli public supported either civil unions or marriage equality for same-gender couples. That's grown from 64% just last September. Meanwhile, the Massachusetts State Legislature approved a bill this week that specifically allows trans students to use the bathrooms and locker rooms that match their gender identity. Most pundits expect Republican Governor Charlie Baker to sign it into law after the House and Senate versions are reconciled in committee. If Baker does sign it, Massachusetts will join 18 other states and more than 100 U.S. cities that have explicit non-discrimination protections on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in public accommodations, housing, and employment. According to a 2014 survey by the well-respected Pew Research Center, more than two in three adults in the United States identify with some form of the Christian religion. That hasn't stopped homophobes from claiming that a sexual and gender minority in the U.S. is somehow able to persecute the country's overwhelming Christian majority. Lawmakers in the state of Mississippi wanted to protect that majority by passing a sweeping so-called religious freedom law that allows workers in the private and public sectors to refuse service to LGBT people based on sincerely held religious belief or moral conviction. Despite mounting losses in the hospitality state's all-important tourism industry, boycotts by leading entertainers and growing corporate pressure on the Republican-dominated legislature to repeal HB 1523, Governor Phil Bryant continues to vigorously defend the law. Accepting an award for signing it from professional homophobe Tony Perkins at an event this week sponsored by the Family Research Council, identified as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, Governor Bryant valiantly continued to fight for HB 1523 and the country's overwhelming Christian majority. Christians have been persecuted throughout the ages. If it takes crucifixion, we will stand in line before abandoning our faith and our belief in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other news, officials with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church, must be gluttons for punishment. After losing the battle over marriage equality in the United States, they've turned their attention to Mexico, where progress on the issue has been advancing. Under the country's complicated legal system, the battle for marriage equality must be fought on a case-by-case, state-by-state basis.
It's already been won in the Federal District of Mexico City and in nine of the country's 31 states. President Enrique Peña has proposed an initiative to extend marriage equality across the country. It would require approval by two-thirds of the National Congress, which many observers say could be an uphill battle. The presidential move nevertheless prompted Mexican LDS elder Benjamin de Hoyos to urge members to vocally oppose any move to open civil marriage in the country to same-gender couples. Leaders of the church's approximately 2,000 Mexican congregations were asked to read the statement from their pulpits this week. In a move to form a nationwide group similar to the National Organization for Marriage in the U.S., the church has also created Conciencia Nacional por la Libertad Religiosa, or National Awareness for Religious Liberty, to specifically fight marriage equality in the country. The LDS Church claims to have almost 1.4 million members in Mexico, slightly above 1% of the nation's total heavily Roman Catholic population. Mormons teamed up with Roman Catholic and other conservative religious organizations to successfully fight marriage equality in the battle over California's infamous Proposition 8. It remains to be seen if a similar Mormon-led effort will have any major impact in Mexico. But finally, Canada's Conservative Party has removed opposition to marriage equality from its official platform, 11 years after the institution was opened to same-gender couples. In a 1,036 to 462 vote held on May 28th, delegates to a party convention decided to remove the plank defining marriage exclusively as a union between one man and one woman. The action doesn't mean that the Tories are now in favor of marriage equality. It just makes the party officially neutral on the issue. Nonetheless, social conservatives worried that the change would cause marriage equality opponents to abandon the party. One MP warned that removing the anti-equality plank was an attack on our values and principles. The Conservative Party is trying to decide who will lead the party up to the next general election to take on hugely popular Liberal Party Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, an outspoken advocate for LGBT rights. He became the first ever Canadian PM to raise the rainbow flag on Parliament Hill this week to mark the beginning of June's traditional Pride Month. That's News Wrap for the week ending June 4th, 2016, produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Tanya Kane Perry. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Now, joining us via phone is a true hero in the LGBT community, a lifetime activist, a former state representative, a former state senator, and currently the member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors for District 3, Ms. Sheila Kuehl. Supervisor Kuehl, are you with us? I am with you, definitely. Hi, thank you for joining us. Sure, you bet. Well, tomorrow is the election that it will probably put Hillary Clinton over the top in the delegate count, although some people in the news are saying that that has I already think happened. She's there already. Yes, I that's right. 
<laughs> He's their presumptive nominee. I saw that on the news, too. I, it just seems a little premature to say the day before the actual not primary. All, of oh. course not. It, I'm saying. You're saying. All right. <laughs> then it is so. Is this the strangest election year ever, or is, just, is this just the way it goes? I think this is just the way it goes. I mean, I think people are very present in the way they think about elections, and they forget very quickly the kind of language that was used in Obama's runs, uh, in, you know, if they were older people talking about FDR or Harry Truman or, I mean, I have to say, no matter what, there's always a lot of vitriol. Now, I've never seen a candidate like Donald Trump. I mean, it's worse than it's ever been in his case, because usually people who will become nominees in the major parties are qualified to be president, of course, <laughs> He is not in any way. I'm not making a joke. I think everybody knows that. You know, L.A. Times, um, for flat out, said that is their mm-hmm. editorial policy. Well, and, you know, they're not they're not rushing to judgment. It's just um, kind of worse than it's ever been. Uh, I think sometimes the parties, each of them and the minority parties, put up people who they think should be president or have good ideas or are good at rhetoric or whatever. Uh, this is strangest because of him. I think it is not strange, however, in terms of the uh, Democratic race. I think it's a, been a very, very interesting contest. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. There, There is so much vitriol, as you say, between the Bernie supporters and the Hillary supporters. But I also see some engagement that's happening in the Democratic Party that I, I really haven't seen, although, you know, it was very exciting, of course, when Obama was came on the scene. Right now, things are very angry, and there's the Bernie or bust movement. But do you see an upside to this? Well, I certainly don't see an upside to the people supporting Bernie who have been so awful. Yeah. I mean, I think they've hurt him, actually, and I think they'll continue to hurt him. And if they, uh, you know, show up outside the convention and uh, maintain that, you know, they're causing a ruckus and it's a good thing, uh, it will hurt him even more. Um, I was a bit disappointed to see him sort of mm, feeling like this was a good thing sometimes because he, I, I think the worst he's done, kind of the worst he's gotten in terms of his attitude, because uh, he was always a really good guy. Uh, a lot of us have known him all the way back to, you know, Vermont. Uh, but I think um, it's strange when when followers get very vitriolic. I haven't noticed that Hillary's followers have been that way, maybe, maybe because, as they say, they're a bunch of old women like me. But, uh, you know, we're just saying, you know, it's going to be President Clinton. Get used to it. Now, Supervisor, I, one of the things that's keeping me engaged in this uh, election is the fact that on the Democrat ticket, we actually have two quite different candidates running. And I don't remember the last time I didn't think, eh, one or the other, I don't care. I mean, how how much more interesting has it made it to you, or, or am I manufacturing this? No, no, I think it's very interesting. Uh, I think, though, claiming that Bernie pulled Hillary to the left uh, is accurate in some ways and not accurate in other ways. I mean, I think a lot of people weren't listening to her back when she was making these really excellent statements about women's issues and family issues. Uh, and it always has struck me that when they talk, people talk now about progressive issues, they're not talking about paid family leave. They're not talking about equal pay, honestly. They're talking about a bunch of different issues. And if you talk about women's issues, oh, you know, that's not uh, progressive. But I hmm. think that Bernie has raised a lot of 
good and reminded us of good issues. You know, when Barney Frank was doing all the work trying to regulate the banks, um, it, it became a big issue. So it isn't Bernie that kind of invented that, you know. But I think what I love is the way it's kind of raised the consciousness of the country about corporate welfare, about corporate greed, about, you know, a lot of issues that have become much more mainstream. And both the Democratic candidates have been talking about it. Assuming that tomorrow morning or by the end of the day tomorrow, it is official. Hillary has gotten over the top for the delegate count. She is, therefore, the presumptive nominee. Um, Do you think that this... What would you like to see happen then in terms of how the Democratic Party presents itself and sort of how, how we move forward? What, you know, you are in the trenches with this stuff in a way that most of us can't imagine. What would you like to see happen? Well, in order for Trump to be trampled, which is the most appropriate thing to happen to him, <laughs> uh, so that people all over the world know that Americans are not in any way going to put up with this, it means that Bernie is going to need to be gracious and smart. Um, he doesn't have to back away from anything he's ever stood for. But he has to say, you know, I wasn't even a Democrat before this race. I entered the Democratic nomination. I didn't win it. But I want everybody to vote for this woman because we need to show that the values or lack thereof that Trump has been trumpeting um, are anathema to Americans, and we need to squash him. Yeah. Now, Supervisor, do you think there's any remote possibility that there will be a third party formed after this if Hillary... I, I hope not. I mean, I wasn't one of those people that blamed Ralph Nader, but I do think that if everybody that voted for Ralph Nader had voted Democratic, it would have never gone to the Supreme Court and we wouldn't have had this long run of Republican warmongers. I mean, I'll just say... Um, and I hope that no one will. There's no reason, in my opinion, for there to be a third-party candidate either between Hillary and Trump or to the left of Hillary. There's no reason. How important do you think this election is? And I'm not just talking about the presidential election. I'm talking about people down ballot um, for LGBT people. Every election is critical for us. Every election. Um, I mean, as you know, because we uh, were talking about talking about this, um, there was a film premiere Saturday uh, of a documentary about the four of us, the four lesbians who were the first openly gay people in the California legislature. And the film really shows what it means having somebody at the table, having somebody in the seat, having somebody to really not only bring the issues forward, but to say, these are my issues. This is my life. I lived this. Uh, and so we do not have an openly gay person running for president. We do have various gay people running for Congress um, in California, even so. But where you're looking at the state legislature and even where they are not openly gay people, our allies are the people that actually helped us secure our rights. Uh, one of the things that I think the movie showed, and um, one of the reviewers of the movie really got it, is you can advocate, you can be in the street, you can have the idea, you can organize. But until someone painstakingly works year after year, one vote at a time, 
to get our rights into the law, we don't have any rights. And, Supervisor, I think we should tell everybody the movie you're talking about is called Political Animals because uh, we had the filmmakers on last week. And it was oh, a delightful good. and educational romp. Well, not a romp, but it was a very educational <laughs> and broadening experience to watch that because I, I so enjoyed the point you made about um, back during the 80s, during the AIDS crisis, it was the lesbians who had a background in feminism that did the organizing because gay men didn't even – they had no background. I thought, well, well, gay men had never had to organize until the AIDS pandemic. And then they kind of turned around and went, oh, my God, how do I get the government to listen to me? They won't even use the word AIDS. How do I get them to care about my health care? Because many of them were going to France and smuggling in drugs, you know, and standing on the corner trying to get them out to people. And it was the first time that they had experienced this kind of horrible discrimination. Now, many of them have been beaten, there's no question, arrested, but it didn't make them as angry until Stonewall. Um, and then uh, we kind of knew what to do with it because we'd been in the women's movement all along. It was wonderful to work together. You know, another thing that we haven't really talked about but is talked about in the film is you have really been involved in true progressive work and very much grassroots work, LGBT work, work for people who are homeless, uh, very much in the AIDS movement. What's happening in L.A. right now that we need to know about? I just feel like we are so kind of overwhelmed with the national political scene that we're kind of missing what's happening in our own front yard. What's what's kind of at the top of your agenda at the moment? Well, I'm very, very proud of L.A. at the moment. Um, I have to say things that people don't know. One out of every 35 Americans lives in L.A. County. There are 10 million people here. If L.A. County were a state, it would be the eighth largest state. So there's five supervisors running something the size of Ohio with no legislature and the same duties that a state has. So the most exciting things is with a progressive majority in L.A. County, we have raised the minimum wage. We have uh, made the jail smaller and put a lot more money into diversion and reentry. We have put hundreds of millions of dollars into trying to get homeless people housed with wraparound services. We have um, thousands of foster kids, and we have brought uh, relative uh, family finders and all kinds of sort of increase of trying to make certain that every one of them has a home and do away with group homes. We've done away with solitary confinement in our juvenile camps. We're building a new juvenile camp because we do have to incarcerate some kids that break the law, but this camp has a full high school on the campus. It has job training. It has small residential units. We are trying to be, it's not just about being progressive. It's about being human and treating people like human beings, second chance, uh, thinking that everyone can be rehabilitated, can do something with their lives. At the same time, of course, we run four hospitals, hundreds of health clinics, hundreds of mental health clinics, uh, do all the public health work, do all the transportation, the trains and the buses, have animal shelters and libraries and parks and beaches, and it's an amazing, amazing job. But I'm proud of us in L.A. We are really enacting a progressive agenda. And, and while you're talking about health care, would you mention the work you have done to make um, PEP and PrEP uh, medications available to those who can't afford it or who might find them difficult to access? Well, that's the wonderful thing about uh, what I, in the movie I called The Majesty of the Law, 
which means if you are seated at the table and you have the ability to do something, you can do it. For years, no one brought a motion to include PrEP to be allocated through our county uh, safety net health system to people who were not yet affected by HIV or AIDS as a uh, prevention, as a prophylactic. And everyone was kind of afraid to do it. There was opposition to it, even by some of our AIDS uh, program providers. I don't know why. And so when I got there and people said, oh, you know, everybody's afraid to do this. And I said, well, what, what are they afraid of? And nobody could really tell me. And they said, well, you know, politically. And I said, okay, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I don't think I have to worry about doing this and it's not going to be good for me politically. So we brought a motion. I got the votes from everybody to do this. And suddenly it becomes a reality and PrEP can be distributed throughout our safety net health care. What would you like to see the people of L.A. County doing on an individual basis that maybe we're not doing right now? to make this a better city, a better county? I think everybody has an interest in something. And I would love to see everyone in Los Angeles County volunteer in some way. Not everybody can run for office. If you can, I hope you will. Uh, not everybody can uh, run a nonprofit or work in a nonprofit, which does so much of the work of the county. But if you can, I hope you will. If you can't, then I hope you'll volunteer. I don't care if it's in a school, in one of our libraries, in a park, uh, in a playground, in a homeless program, just feeding people, a veterans shelter, uh, programs at the VA, reading to children, early childhood education and child care, anything you can do. It really makes your life even more amazing. And that's the difference between us and people with vision, because if Abby had asked me, I would have said, I just want people to take the shopping cart back to the store and not leave it in the I, parking I, lot. It's everything counts. It does. Too small, too small. <laughs> but voting tomorrow is also a pretty good thing to do. And go vote. You might see me at your precinct. Um, uh, Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm very excited to talk with you as this year evolves and we see what happens with this election. Let's hope it's good news. I hope it will be, too. And thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you both as well. Talk Thanks. to you soon. Thank you. Still to come, we talk international LGBT human rights with Jessica Stern, the executive director of Outright Action, formerly known as Equal Her. And we'll be right back. The birth of the Gay Pride March, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On November 2, 1969, in Philadelphia, the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations made a resolution that sparked the creation of Gay Pride celebrations. In part, it read... We propose that a demonstration be held annually on the last Saturday in June in New York City to commemorate the 1969 spontaneous demonstrations on Christopher Street, and this demonstration be called Christopher Street Liberation Day. No dress or age regulations shall be made for this demonstration. We also propose that we contact homophile organizations throughout the country and suggest that they hold parallel demonstrations on that day. We propose a nationwide show of support. Thus was born the Gay Pride Parade as we know it. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson.
I am gay, and being gay has been certainly a very important part of my life. But I will die if I do not have clean air to breathe. I will die if I don't have shelter. I will suffer greatly if the gap between the rich and the poor continues to <laughs> widen. And I think gay people have a responsibility, like everyone else. But I do think that gay people are special in some ways. That because we exist in every color of skin, because we were raised in every type of family, that maybe we can be part of the process of uniting people to address the gravest issues that affect us all. I really have come to believe that the greatest divide and the most destructive divide between us is not sexual orientation or gender or even race. It's class. It's about money and power and the new economy that we're living in. I want to do whatever I can to help build power for working class people, gay and straight and black and brown and young and old. We need to help all working class people understand that it matters who you fall in love with, it matters what color you are, but we are going to sink or swim together. Hi, I'm Cleve Jones, and you are listening to IMRU, right here on KPFK 90.7 FM. So welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. The time is now 7.32. There has been such a controversy about the rebranding of CSW Pride as a music festival. Tonight we'll climb into the IMRU Gay Back Machine for a journey back to the first one, not a music festival, in 1970 to see for ourselves how it all began. So buckle up, because time travel through the 1980s can make for a bumpy ride. June 28, 1970. Gay power! Gay power! Thousands marched in New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles. They represented the mood of growing militancy in the United States gay community. It was actually a commemoration day as much as a civil rights demonstration because one year before, thousands of homosexuals rioted in New York's Greenwich Village section. The disorders began with a routine police raid on a homosexual bar, the Stonewall, on Christopher Street, in the heart of the West Village, commonly referred to as the Gay Ghetto of New York. By the end of the week, scores of police and rioters had been injured, many were arrested, and one man, a cab driver, was dead. Almost every homosexual who was in New York at the time of the Stonewall Rebellion has his own private memory of what took place. One of the longtime leaders of the gay rights movement, Craig Rodwell, remembers it this way. As I was there every night, uh, the first night was Friday, I was on my way home from a friend's house. Uh, the raid was just starting at that time, and we noticed the crowd, so we went over there. And a crowd was gathering out in front, and there was a paddy wagon pulled up and a few people being taken out. The crowd was very quiet at the time. I wasn't. I, got, I started yelling gay power and get the mafia out of the bars, and my lover nudged me and told me to shut up. But uh, within about 15 minutes, the crowds really started uh, doing it, going really far from much further beyond what I would have done or did. It started with a few 
coins and pebbles being thrown at the police. And then the police retreated into the stone wall and parking meters were brought out and chants of gay power and get the mafia out of the bars. And then after the police barricaded themselves inside, it was like half an hour later, the riot police started moving up Christopher, breaking up the crowd, which had really become a very angry crowd with hundreds of bottles and rocks. There wasn't a, one window left in the whole place after about 10 minutes. And they broke the crowd up into small groups, and this went on for like two or three hours, back and forth in the whole area. I think they thought that people would just go home or run, uh, especially since they were, were gay people. They're not used to gay people standing up at all, especially in front of police. But the people would, they would chase the people away and they would go around the block and come in another way. And this sort of tug of war went on all evening. And then on Saturday night, it was much the same thing. Starting about nine, crowds started to gather in the area, uh, sort of small groups on the sidewalk. And then around 11 or 12, they started taking over the street and stopping cars from coming through, unless there were gay people in them. Uh, a few fires were set. But generally, it was a, an angry mood, uh, a lot of chanting, a lot of hand-holding, a lot of assertion of, of being gay. And that, it was a way of saying we're tired of hiding, tired of leading two lives, tired of denying our basic identity, denying ourselves. A general assertion of gay people. Newfound pride, really, a collective pride in their identity. The Stonewall Rebellion served notice on the heterosexual majority that a growing number of gays were not afraid anymore and were not content to continue living out their lives in fear and oppression. They say I'm crazy, got no sense, but I don't care. They may or may not mean offense, but I don't care. You see, I'm sort of independent. I am my own superintendent, and my star is on the ascendant. That's why I don't care. I don't care. I don't care if I do get a mean and stony stare. If I'm not successful, it won't be distressful, because I don't care. The Stonewall Rebellion will be remembered as one of the major turning points in the homosexual struggle for equality. Dr. Franklin Kameny, president of the Washington, D.C. Mattachine Society, explains why. Whatever one may think of the merits of that particular form of expression of protest or dissent, and whatever you may think of the merits of that particular demonstration, what's mo those are not that relevant. That what's important is the message which is being conveyed, and that should be made absolutely clear. And that is that we've been shoved around for 3,000 years, and we're tired of it, and we're starting to shove back. And if we don't get what's coming to us and get it promptly, there's going to be a lot more shoving back. And those were the good old days. Well, when we need more information about what's happening in the world besides Trump, 
and all this <laughs> stuff when we actually want to know what's happening outside of our borders in LGBT land. Nothing there... happens outside of America, silly. No, it's all just rather vague and amorphous. But sometimes we sometimes we look over the wall. Um, and when we need to look over the wall, there's one person that we think of, and that is Jessica Stern, who is the executive director of Outright... Action International, which is formerly known as the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, which was also known as (laughs) (laughs) It was a mouthful, but so worth learning. But so she always calls in from New York. But what I want to know is how do we get so lucky, Jessica, to have you here with us in person today? Well, first of all, this warm reception makes me want to get on a plane every day. (laughs) So thank you for having me here. I try to come to L.A. twice a year because obviously it's L.A. But this particular trip, I'm very lucky because I'll be speaking on a pride panel at the West Hollywood City Council Chambers tomorrow night from 7 to 9. And every June for Pride Month, they do a series of events and they're often focused on what's happening for LGBTI communities around the world. Tomorrow night, Mayor Pro Tempore John Heilman will moderate and the panel will be focused on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a little bit of all of those, unfortunately. And there's some good news. Um, and yeah, so that's the LGBT Rights Abroad International Look at Equality tomorrow at 7 p.m. Can people just show up? Do they need to RSVP? Do you know? Well, I think there's the official response and the unofficial response. Ah, okay. Officially, <laughs> RSVPs are required. Yeah. Unofficially, everyone is welcome. Cool. Perfect. Very cool. And it's free either way. Yeah, so I would say go to the West Hollywood City page and see what they have to tell you. And the most important thing, is there a reception afterwards? Oh, there is most definitely a reception. And That's it will all most I needed. definitely be fabulous. Perfect. There you go. You've got Wenzel's attention. <laughs> Just before we came on air, we were I asked you, what do you want to talk about? And you talked about you said pride. It's mm. pride month. Mm. I think, oh, well, I know what pride is. It's a bunch of guys in leather shops getting sunburns. Um, <laughs> if that much. It's clearly more than that. Talk to me a little bit about what you meant when you said putting pride in context. I think that in the United States, we have come to take pride for granted, so much so that on Sunday, I went to Queen's Pride, where I was very fortunate to be one of the Grand Marshals. And um, my friends were so sweet, and they generously came out. And we realized that although when we were young and scrappy, and we would go to Pride religiously every year, we hadn't been to a Pride together in about 10 years. And that's because, for the most part, Our lives have settled down, and we live with a lot of comfort and privilege. And they're busy with their kids and their partners, and they don't feel the need to take to the streets in the way that we once did. But I guess the reason I wanted to talk about pride is for two reasons. One, because I think it's really important that LGBTI people in the U.S. send a message that a gay marriage decision by the U.S. Supreme Court does not represent the sum total of our movement's agenda, that our agenda is actually one of liberation. And the work has to go on, whether it's a fight for access to bathrooms that is fundamentally based on dignity, or we want to take on the growing inequalities experienced by queer youth, people of color, and other vulnerable Americans. But the second part of the story is that I think as we become safer in the U.S., it's time to internationalize our analysis as LGBTI movements and say, what's happening in Uganda affects me. What's happening in Nigeria is part of my understanding of a queer community, and I want to know how I can give back. 
Now, is Uganda still the worst place in the world to be gay, or are there worse places? You know, I would argue that Uganda was never the worst place on earth to be gay. Where would you say? Well, I would always turn that question around and say, isn't the worst place on earth to be gay wherever you live and you feel unsafe? And blammo. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned the bathroom bills because I think a lot of people very sort of facilely say, gosh, here we are in America. We're arguing about, you know, bathrooms and people are being stoned to death for being gay in other places. Where are our priorities? Are our issues the same? What's the connection? Mm. Are our issues the same as LGBTI people around the world? Yeah. You know, as we're fighting for our issues Mm. and dignity, ultimately, is it the same thing? Or are we dealing with something? I don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'm I'm sort of getting at. It's the question between universal experiences. Priorities and universal experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a really amazing academic named Alan M. Sosa, who's getting his PhD at Essex University in England. And he's actually documenting some of the historical manifestations of homosexuality in Malawi. And as part of that, he's also doing interviews with more than 50 people who are engaged in consensual, same-gender loving behavior in Malawi today. And I always remember a story that Alan told me about one of his interviewees. So Alan met with this guy, and the guy agreed to be interviewed because he knew what Alan's research was about. So it's already, you know, kind of self-selected sample. And so Alan asked, so what are you into? Who do you date? And the guy says, well, you know, I like masculine men. And Alan says, okay, so how do you identify? The man says, well, I won't date feminine men. I'll only date masculine men. And Alan's like, yeah, okay, I I get it. So he says, so that means I identify as heterosexual because I'm really a man who's not into anything other than being masculine. (laughs) That makes my head hurt. (laughs) But it's not the first time I have heard this kind of thing. I mean, that's – I mean – this is a terrible reference, but I think it was Ernst Rum, one of the early head of the brown shirts. This is so obscure. You can just hit me for bringing this up. Okay. Was in the early days of the Nazi party, was gay, very masculine identified. And it was that was all part of his thinking was like, I am the ultimate expression of masculinity. Probably a bad person to bring up as an example, but... I can't believe in Malawi they have no fats, no femmes, though. I mean, that's <laughs> such a cliche, but I, I can't believe it's extended that far. I mean, there's stereotypes everywhere, right. I would suppose. But I think your your question in many ways hits the nail on the head. What experiences are universal when ultimately desire is so personal? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say the universal dimensions of our struggle are safety, full recognition under the law, dignity, recognition. I mean, these things, they look very different depending upon where you live. You know, our family structures vary radically from country to country. But the fact that we want to be accepted by our families and we want the right to form our own families is probably a universal experience. And how do you organize when you have someone that say, I say, I identify as heterosexual because I like very manly men. I'm all about that. How do you organize? How do you get this person invested in this idea that we can come together? Mm. I think that he already made a decision to participate in some kind of 
community-based initiative by agreeing to participate mm-hmm. in these interviews. So in a sense, he already selected us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I work for Outright International, and what we really do is we partner with local community-based organizations around the world, and they have their networks, and they know how to talk to people within their communities. And then they turn to us and they say, okay, you know, we want change to happen faster. What are some of the tricks that can give us shortcuts? What are some of the ways we can campaign more effectively? How do we actually get some part of the government to talk with us? And then we come in and we basically do a situational analysis and we say, what are your strengths? What are your challenges? And here are some ideas for how to move forward. And I think this is important as a lot of Americans are thinking beyond U.S. borders. The idea is not to export what we've done in the United States. You can't export our successes and our failures. That will never work somewhere else. They're ours. But what you can say are, these are some of the tools in the toolbox. See what works for you and leave the rest behind. What region of the world would you say the LGBT community is most successfully woven into the fabric of the society at large? Oh, that's such a that's such a tough question. Uh, and it will be on the final. We're going high <laughs> theory right now. We'll come I, down to like well, like individual countries and what's actually happening but, but in a I, second. I, I, but I thought, you know, is it a Scandinavian thing? Is it a Southern European thing? Or I mean, because I I don't study it as you have, and I just wondered, are there parts of the world, or even regions within another country, where you think for some reason everybody's they're getting, getting along? Yeah. they're figuring it out or something in their own way. Well, I want to say that asking an advanced question like that when a person left their home at 6 a.m. to catch a flight to be interviewed by you <laughs> is so inhospitable. I don't know why I came here today. Wenzel's rude. But... I'm rebuking myself. <laughs> no, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's very hard to answer in one way because integration looks different mm. everywhere. So, for instance, I think that in Latin America – LGBTI movements have been very much integrated into broader human rights movements. And part of the reason why we've seen almost lightning successes in the past 10 years is because LGBTI activists were so woven into the fabric of struggles post-dictatorship for other communities' rights, as well as for their own rights, that when they started to say, we're ready to actually advocate for this specific category of LGBTI recognition, people said, of course, you've been with us all along. We're going to be there for you. Um, I would say some of the strongest activists that I know are from the Middle East, and they stand up on every progressive issue. I feel like their analysis of intersectionality is like, mind-bogglingly sophisticated. They definitely are not just asking for gay rights. They're asking for human rights for everyone. Um, obviously, Scandinavia has too many rights, too many <laughs> too benefits. Many. Yes. We're not even going to talk about gotta Scandinavia. got to bring them down. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> we don't like that. One place you did want to talk about, I know, was Indonesia. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking about it. I thought maybe your listeners would have read a little bit about the crisis that unfolded in Indonesia in the first quarter of this year. Some of your listeners may have heard that a minister of education heard that there was a kind of student organization working on sexuality on a university campus. He got wind of this. He wanted to shut down the organization. He accused it of being a, you know, a gay activist organization, which in fact it wasn't. And his scapegoating of this one organization just spread like wildfire across the country. Cabinet minister after cabinet minister 
almost tried to outdo one another in hateful statements. And then members of parliament jumped on the bandwagon. And many of those members of parliament also owned the major media outlets in the country. So then it became the, you know, tabloid news story of the day. It got to the point where there actually was a successful initiative to ban gay emojis. Let that sink in. I'm not quite sure what they look like. (laughs) They seem about as sexless as anything could be. And yet totally threatening in what they symbolize. And actually um, Outright and two Indonesian organizations, particularly this one group, Aris Palangi, an LGBTI group, were holding a training for community members looking at, you know, how to be safe, how to access citizenship rights. And uh, a right-wing fundamentalist organization found out where the meeting was. They showed up at the hotel. They threatened the hotel management. They said the meeting had to be shut down. Our colleagues contacted the police and said, we feel unsafe. We have a contract with the hotel. We want to carry out our business. And the police said, you need to work this problem out with the fundamentalist group directly. That's Um, fun. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like a clean answer. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to bring this up because I think Indonesia is actually the place I've seen in recent years where there's been a moral panic that spread faster than anywhere else, faster than Russia, faster than Uganda. And yet the story really hasn't made its way to most people's consciousness. What do you think it is about Indonesia specifically that made that such a hotspot? Because it's such a crossroads for so many cultures. very international. I know. So, I mean, what what have they absorbed or failed to absorb or absorbed too much of? I don't know. There is a question in there. Please find it. There are as many theories as to why the moral panic spread so quickly in Indonesia as there are potentially right answers. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to look at the situation in context. There's more than 120 LGBTI organizations in Indonesia. Indonesia is the world's fourth most populous country. It's the world's largest Muslim country. So it is a fascinating and incredibly important place when you're talking about LGBTI acceptance. One of the main theories about why this moral panic spread so quickly is that the government is really, um, he doesn't have a majority power. He's looking to curry power with the political base, and he's grasping at straws. And so what I wanted to make sure your listeners were aware of is that there's a national security bill making its way through the Indonesian parliament, and it's written really broadly, and it's going to be used to crack down on LGBTI activism and human rights defenders if the definition isn't narrowed. And I think this is a problem both in the context of Indonesia, but also because the linking of LGBTI rights and threats to national security is something that we all have to be very afraid of. And I'm just curious, to bring it back down to home, what would your mid-semester report card be for America right now? (laughs) Um. I mean, in terms of LGBTI U.S. foreign policy, I would give it like an A. Really? And yeah, I, I, I'm almost me. embarrassed to say that, but yeah, I would. How so? Why? Well, you can never divorce LGBTI rights from the U.S.'s larger strategies around militarism and human rights on other issues. But I am trying to do that anyway. And I would say the U.S. government has more successfully developed policies and mainstream them throughout the work of the State Department and USAID than any other 
government other than your favorite Scandinavian countries <laughs> in the world. They're all my favorite. I can't pick one. And may we continue to be doing that. We don't have much time. But for folks who do want to make a difference, I think it's so easy to say, I can't. I mean, I, I'm worried about what's happening in Indonesia or Uganda or Iran. What can what can we do? Two things. Make sure that when you're voting in the next presidential election, foreign policy is a part of your priorities and your calculations. The U.S. actually has been a leading voice on the international stage for LGBTI rights, and it's made a huge and positive difference. That's one thing. And a second thing is, I hate to say it, but make donations. Make donations to support community-based organizations, including Outright. And if we wanted to donate to Outright, where would we go? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Um, You could go to a lovely website that we newly designed to make very fabulous and accessible. Oh, thank you so much. And it's outrightinternational.org. All words that are easy to spell. So thank you so much for coming to coming to sit and talk to us tonight and make us feel smarter. Every time you come to L.A., you are obligated to come here. I'm sorry. That's it would be true. my enormous honor, especially if the questions get easier. <laughs> no more phone calls. <laughs> you, you, you did them well. Jessica, thank you so much. Jessica Stern, Executive Director of Outright Action International. Thank you for doing the work that you do. And please always keep us posted on anything that's going on. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for tonight, folks. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our board op, Liz Tapia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every after- Tuesday afternoon. We'll close with a song by John Gilbert Levitt that celebrates this special month, and it's called Pride. Good night. Good night. Society in 1903. Sigmund Freud's Vienna's hype identifies a homotype. The intermediate sex and heterodoxy. The gay wave moves across the sea. Hero there, Miss Liberty. Betty Booth is hot and switches out in the cold. Greenwich Village, Queensbury. Gays in high society. Harlem, not Chicago fights. Leopold and Lowe. Pride, pride. Gotta have pride. Been around too long to keep it inside. Pride can't sit back and watch from the side. Pride is power and power is pride. It's time to celebrate all the colors of the rainbow. Get out into the streets, follow the tide. Hits the Broadway stage, the fleets and cat moves all the rage And the well of loneliness appears on the sands Depression, red lights, crystal night Adolf shows Olympic might Put on your pink triangles and put up your hands A-bomb, fifties, keen, the Kinsey shake the cocktail scene James Dean, Manachine, Doris Day and Harry Bay Donald with the Tory rights Joe McCarthy picks a fight Jay Edgar Roy, call shame on you What else do you plan to do? Our naked lunch in Giovanni's room Marilyn the picnic scene Jackie's in her casini Vatican too And something's coming soon Summer 1969 The heat is rising all the time And over the rainbow Judy Garland sleeps Stonewall bar Men in blue Heads from broken bottles flew Out of the bars And into the streets Pride, pride Gotta have pride Been around too long to keep it inside Pride 
back and watch me decide Pride is power and power is pride It's time to celebrate All the colors of the rainbow Get out into the streets Follow the tide Boys in the band play fit Fiddler sang those bathhouse days Lance loud, gay and proud Astro Wild Bookstore Sister George tunes Marie Tales of the City and Nita Bryant Village Pickle Studio 54 Harvey Milk Rough Trade Aaron Fritz Prom Date Grid Torchum Trilogy Boy George and GMHC HIV Identified Rock Hudson Liberace Died Reagan Finally Says the Word Bowers versus Harvey's Heard Quilt act up, Randy Schultz, Queer Nation, Maple Floor, Phase E.T. Amendment to Cracker Barrel, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, HX, Cyber Sex, March on D.C. Greg Lugina, Selton, John George Michael, what is going on? Little Bear, Rowdy Girls, spend a day at Disney World, Kunan and Scare them, Nick the Case, Ian, Ellen, Will and Grace, Matthew Shepard, God bless you, what else can we look forward to? Pride, pride. Gotta have pride We've been around too long to keep it inside Pride Can't sit back and watch from the side Pride is power and power is pride It's time to celebrate All the colors of the rainbow Get out into the streets Follow the tide Pride, pride Gotta have pride We've been around too long to keep it inside Pride Can't sit back and watch from the side Pride is power and power is pride It's time to celebrate All the colors of the rainbow Get out into the streets Follow the tide